CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 47 Is Europe still a fortress? Refugees in Central and Eastern Europe Migration politics have become the major subject of EU politics in the last decade. Within this period, Europe faced the two biggest migration movements since World War II. In this episode, we'll be talking about approaches to refugees and other migrants over the past decade, especially in 2015, 2021 and 2022. Welcome to CEE, Central Europe Explained. My name is Melanie Eindl. And my name is Malvina Talik. We are both research associates at the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. Melanie's regional expertise lies within the Western Balkans. Malvina focuses on the Visegrad countries, in particular Poland. So, as already explained, we decided to look at three years in particular. Starting with 2015, the so-called long summer of migration was undoubtedly decisive for the following trajectory of European politics. Frontex and the UNHCR called the influx of people coming mainly from the conflict and war-shaking countries Syria, Afghanistan and Iraq as the biggest forced migration crisis in Europe since World War II. Only the refugee influx from Ukraine in 2022 superseded this. The Western Balkan route was the main route of refugees and migrants this year. Frontex registered more than 700,000 people traveling on this route in 2015, but the actual number, including unregistered people, is likely much higher. Serbia and Hungary, besides Greece, were the two European countries who managed the largest share of refugees on their territory. One can see how collective memory and EU membership status led to differences in the handling of the situation. Now looking more closely at the discourses in these two countries, Serbia recalled the displacement experiences of its own people just about 20 years ago. Under the phrase, mis mobili is beglitze, so we've been refugees ourselves, they approached refugees and migrants in a humanitarian way and facilitated their journey towards the EU. The Serbian government also used the opportunity to improve its image on the international stage that still suffered from the bloody Yugoslav dissolution wars in the 1990s. On the other hand, demonstrating the respect of human rights and reliability in migration cooperation ensured the candidate country financial support of the EU. Looking at Hungary, although Hungarians also have their own displacement experiences from 1956. These do not play a role in today's national identity. The image of being a protector of the Christian borders in Europe, on the other hand, is prominently upheld in collective memory. Hungary's government showed its hostile face against refugees and other migrants, calling them terrorists, sex offenders and backwards. At the same time, the Orban regime opposed anything that counters the image of a picture-perfect Hungarian. So national minorities, oppositional politicians, the liberal so-called lying press and George Soros. Although Hungary is a member state, EU cooperation reached an all-time low. I find very interesting in the response of the EU back then is that everyone seemed to be very surprised that there was such an influx of refugees and other migrants out of a sudden. And at the same time, I think just because this conflict, this war in Syria was a little bit further, no one seemed to think that they would be directly affected. And in a way, everyone seemed to have woken up just as people were at the borders. 
when they were, you know, within our side and not before. When it comes to Poland, it was not directly affected, if I may use this word. And initially, the response was actually not negative. It is not what we know Poland for later on. The government wanted actually initially to accept asylum seekers and refugees within the relocation scheme. If I remember properly, around 7,000 people were to be relocated to Poland. However, 2015 was also the year of elections. And this topic became extremely politicized. It became one of those issues that are said or seen as those that propel a peace law and justice party to power. And when it comes to the way that uh, refugees and other migrants were presented, this pretty much is along the lines with how Hungary uh, referred to, to them. So, uh, you know, terrorists, threat. Uh, there's also this uh, notorious quote from, from one of Polish politicians who, are saying, who, who said that they would bring diseases with them and that we have to be careful. And society was very much divided over the issue. Poles themselves have a memory of being refugees themselves for political reasons or because of, of the war. And many of them in my grandparents' generation uh, found shelter in the Middle East during the Second World War. I think also something very interesting you just mentioned is that it was treated like there was like this all of a sudden event that those people were at our borders. And somehow in all those years, even now, from 2015 on, I often have the feeling that European politics has not learned from that to have more strategic foresights. That there are events around in our direct neighborhood as we have it now, but also maybe a little bit farther that can lead to migration movements to Europe. Also, if we take the climate crisis for account, you know, this is also going to happen that a lot of people will be so-called climate refugees and will come to Europe. And I think this is really something so important that we learn from that and actually also prepare for the situations and do not continue with only trying to prevent it because in the end this will not be possible. Yeah, we can also talk about prevention uh, later on when it comes to, to walls. Um, but yeah, this challenge is responded to with, you know, walls or this negative media coverage. But no one sees that you have to solve it somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, when, when refugees and other migrants come to Europe, this is like the, the end of this chain, not the beginning, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have to also take some measures, not necessarily to stop people, but to help solve problems there yes. and then, because no walls can stop them from coming. Mm -hmm. They might just make it more dangerous for them and probably more, co more costly. But there is a reason why someone decides to go on this really hazardous journey. Many politicians see uh, refugees, other migrants and smugglers, you know, as a part of cooperative group, one gang almost, but they don't see that very often those people are also victims of smugglers mm -hmm. who that are also being abused. And maybe just to add to this, I see it so often in politics, but even on conferences with experts that migration and um, asylum is mostly discussed with security measures mm. and lesser with actually integration measures. And I think this is also something that is that needs to be shifted to actually deal with the people that will eventually come. Because even if we can 
maybe limit the number or lower lower the number with border fences, whatever. If Europe really decides this is what Europe wants to do to become this notorious fortress, mm. we can never reach a number zero. And so we also have to think about ways of how to deal with the people that will eventually come. Now, there's this shift from uh, the human uh, dimension to more security. And this is where money is invested to, right? Uh, this is where this threat discourse comes in. But somehow, again, this, this, this other aspect totally disappears. And I agree that this is something that should be taken more care of. And what I also found puzzling in 2015 is that uh, Hungary that you mentioned was one, and I think still is, one of those countries uh, that are in demographic difficulties. Actually, they need more people. And at the same time, that was exactly the country that was opposing refugees and other migrants who could be part of the solution, you know? Mm -hmm. Indeed, there is this idea of Ivan Krastev and Stephen Holmes that they put out that this populist uh, reactions in Central and Eastern European countries that, as you said, also have high emigration um, rates. So this stance actually stems from right that, that they are actually upset that the West has opened the doors to their own societies. So they don't face these challenges by integrating people from other societies, but rather to rail against the West and the open doors policy of the West to kind of give an incentive for their people. Now looking at Hungary, for example, for Hungarians to come back to the homogeneous homeland or to stay there and say so they actually campaign against the West so that their own people don't leave and using those narratives like you don't want to live in those multicultural societies. Look, they have so much problems with all those immigrants that came. So rather stay in Hungary. But this all stems from actually their own people migrating to Western European societies. And I think it's a really interesting thought. Yeah. At the same time, you know, this um allegation that look how many problems Western countries have like France or the UK. It's, you know, comparing pears and apples, apples and pears, because the reason why those riots, why the problems happen are not because there are so many foreigners as much as the fact that they, the countries themselves, the governments didn't expect that those people would stay and they would really little to integrate them properly. So those people became, in a way, citizens, but of the second class, mm -hmm. right? They, they were, there was this expectation that they will return. They would just come, work, pay taxes, and leave. And this is a challenge that, of course, uh, other countries, uh, also in our target region of the IDM, have to face now. But I think we'll come to that soon. <laughs> What I also find interesting is that, um, at least, again, in Poland, Religion was not something that was important in the context of migration. I mean, first of all, Poland was the country that people were migrating from, especially in the 90s and previously also for political reasons. But just to give you an example of what I mean, during Chechen wars, there were very many Chechens who found um, asylum in Poland, and they are Muslim. And this has never been a reason for a public outcry. Uh, this was somehow never an issue. So we see how in, after 2015, 
when this topic became highly politicized, religion started playing a part mm -hmm. to that extent. If you compare here the East and the West, it's um, that also countries like France that you just mentioned or the UK, they just have this colonial heritage, right? So there were always like actually parts of their countries out of outside of Europe. And eventually a lot of people from those like former um, um, colonialized regions also came to France or to the UK. Yeah, and probably also knowing French already. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, I smile when you said colonial history because uh, especially now on the wave of post-colonial studies, you can say that many countries in our region have some sort of post-colonial heritage here and there as well. I mean, be it Poland, be it Hungary. Mm -hmm. And you can see that those networks of people who actually are interested in migrating to, to those countries is somehow related to this sort of quasi-colonial colonial heritage as well. But I mean, as I said, this is Hungary, um, also Poland, I mean, opposed, opposed this relocation scheme, then it was joined by the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and the, the, the Visegrad group actually reinvented itself by opposing refugees and other migrants in 2015. It became this notorious Visegrad group. But I mean, Poland experienced this influx of refugees and other migrants in 2021 for the first time. And I mean, in comparison to the Balkan route, this number was really low. But for this particular route between Poland and Belarus, this was already an increase of more or less 1000%. So quite high. And it was no coincidence because what happened previously is that Lukashenko threatened Europe to flood it with refugees. I think that's the exact quote for sanctions that were imposed on Belarus again. So what happened, he or his regime intentionally lured people to Minsk, promising them you know, visas, uh, promising them an easy entry to the EU. Uh, and in this way, very many families as well came, very many people from countries actually all around the world. And this is also important to emphasize because very often we say refugees, other migrants, we think about a homogeneous group. But actually, the, those people are very diverse, mm -hmm. right? But may I ask, like, how big was the number that actually crossed the border? Um, or, I mean, I know that the borders to Belarus were definitely consolidated then again, like even more in 2021 on the Lithuanian and on the Latvian border. I wonder, I know there were a lot of people in this border sphere between Belarus and Poland, but was there actually a significant number coming to Poland? Yeah, so as I said, the increase was by more than 1000%. For example, in 2020, approximately 670 people wanted to cross this border. And in 2021, those were already more than 8000. So okay. for this region, this was uh, a huge increase. It took a couple of months uh, until Polish government reacted, but when it did, it was actually um, quite, I wouldn't like to say brutal, but um, quite decisive on the measures. So there was a lot of border security forces there who were supported by the army. I think a special emergency zone was imposed on mm -hmm. it, or like became a special emergency zone, which meant that only local inhabitants plus security guards plus army were uh, allowed to be there. No media, 
no doctors, no volunteers, no lawyers. So mm. no one had access there to really control what was happening. Poland also didn't want Frontex to, to be there. The explanation was actually uh, reasonable because the point was Frontex does not have that many forces and they can be somewhere else at the border between Lithuania and Belarus, for example. Poland doesn't need them. But at the same time, Frontex also controls fundamental rights of refugees and other migrants are respected or not. Yes. And, I mean, of course, Frontex has also been very controversial, also in the part of Europe that you are researching. Mm-hmm. But but still, the very fact that uh, it was absent also spoke volumes. And um, after a couple of months, uh, the construction of the wall started. And again, this was seen as a way of stopping migration and, and solving the problem. One worrying fact as well was that pushbacks became legalized. And this is actually ironic because pushbacks are illegal according to uh, European law, right? And international standards. But Poland managed to legalize them. And uh, just a couple of months ago, Lithuania did the same. So we're talking about 2023, but they also followed in Polish footsteps. You just mentioned Frontex, and I find it also interesting that Frontex actually ended its cooperation with the Hungarian border police because of those illegal pushbacks and because there is basically no way anymore to seek for asylum on Hungarian territory. So you actually have to be, for example, you can seek asylum in a Hungarian embassy in Belgrade, in Kiev, but you're not allowed anymore to actually entry the border and seek for asylum there, which obviously is also not according to international law. So Frontex had to end its cooperation on the Hungarian-Serbian border. So you can imagine how bad it has to get if even Frontex doesn't want to work with you anymore. Sorry, mate, be a bit controversial here. Oh, well. <laughs> but especially then in 2021, the media focus and also the focus of European politics really shifted to this eastern border, the border with Belarus. But at the same time, or I have the number of 2020 here, um, 27,000 irregular migrants were detected by Frontex on the Balkan route. And you have to add to this number also the people that are so-called stranded in the region for years now since uh, Europe decided to or attempted to close the borders on the Balkan route also as a result of the EU-Turkey deal. So we actually had still larger number in this region which was mostly still neglected at this time in in the public discourse in Europe. But I find it surprising, you know, how easily those topics, um, I mean, topics where you're talking about people, you know, disappear from media, like how quickly the attention is being shifted. We'll see, of course, later when we talk about refugees from Ukraine. As you already mentioned, media, when I think about media framing of the situation, this humanitarian crisis on the Poland-Belarus border, because very quickly it turned into a humanitarian crisis, is that public uh, media, which are close to the government, were portraying, you know, uh, those people who are trying to cross the border as as a threat. Opposition media painted a different picture and were trying, you know, to call for solidarity. Many people were also 
but the society was divided because maybe not everyone wanted to let them in, but this didn't mean that they were to be pushed back to Belarus, which we cannot actually call such a safe country for them. We also know that Belarusian forces were forcing very often those people to go, you know, they were beating them as well. So we, we cannot say that those people were not, but that they were safe there. But I also wanted to talk about when this uh, was evolving, it was the end of the year. And this part of Poland is one of the coldest, which meant that, you know, many people were stranded somewhere in the primeval forest. The border between Poland and Belarus is around 400 kilometers long. It was very cold and um, I don't know, how can you survive two weeks there? You know, there were volunteers who were trying to help them. This was actually criminalized, right? So supporting migrants and refugees there was, was, was being penalized, right? It's actually also something we see in the Mediterranean where sea rescue missions are criminalized. Yeah, and actually the number of uh, those ships that can help them is, is limited, yes. right? If I'm not mistaken. As you just said, those people were really the victim of those policies. Maybe Lukashenko is here in the, the main driver of those developments, but still the Poli and, and the Polish and the Lithuanian government also accused him of hybrid warfare. So basically they equated refugees and other migrants with weapons, right? And the, and the humanized were... them in that way, because yes. in a way, uh, yeah, you call someone a warfare and this does not mean that you should not support these people. Because, you know, they be became almost a ping pong ball between two countries, you know. One, one side pushed them back, another one forced them to go to Poland. And um, I find it problematic because actually, in a way, you were a double victim. Now, what I also uh, find important to emphasize here is that uh, the, the way the EU and other member states reacted was a little bit uh, disappointing, I would say, because in this case, of course, Lukashenko and Belarus were, were condemned. But at the same time, uh, they didn't condemn Poland for the measures, like even legalizing pushbacks, which are not in line with the EU law. This has not been really condemned. Actually, I think even that they really like supported Poland, right? In in they are supporting the EU um, borders. And this is what the discourse was about, right? And again, we come to the to security, right? And the security of the borders, and we forget the uh, human dimension of this mm. of the situation, right? And human drama here. And this is why it was interesting to observe what happened when. Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022 and there was this huge influx of refugees coming also to Poland and I would say it was not so obvious that Poland would be that welcoming but what was a game changer in this case was the political will where the government opened the borders instead of closing them and erecting walls, you know, where the civil society was very much encouraged to open their houses to, to refugees to help them. And there were many reasons for that. Of course, I mean, shared enemy, I would say, but also cultural similarities in a way. So I think not only the Polish society and not only Polish politicians, but also those in Europe saw themselves in Ukrainians in a way. Mm -hmm. And of, of course, this led to this discussion about double standards, right? Is it that Ukrainians were white and Christian, and this is why they were welcomed? 
like I mean, why why was temporary protection directive not activated in two thousand fifteen? There were many voices calling for it, but this has not happened until two thousand twenty two. Yes, and also given that we talk about a much smaller number actually in two thousand fifteen, and also still now, if we look back at the year two thousand twenty two, what I find interesting when we look at media or politician statements about. 2022, there is often um, now said we had 1 million asylum applications in Europe, but these do not include 4 million Ukrainians who also sought for shelter in Europe. And I never understood why we do differentiate between those people. Why don't we just say, okay, we have 5 million asylum applications in Europe. Mm -hmm. And here we see that still those people coming from North Africa, from the Middle East, from um, Asia, are securitized in general in comparison to Ukrainians. While we welcome Ukrainians, we integrate them in labor markets, in education system, which is good, don't get me wrong, we should totally do that. Maybe we should just not differentiate between people with maybe a darker complexion or another religion and confession. If we look and hear the topic integration and the inclusion comes again and at the absorption capacities of countries and I mean a lot of Ukrainians actually wanted to stay in Poland in comparison to maybe um, a lot of the refugees and other migrants that came through the Balkan route who then traveled further uh, they didn't want to stay in Serbia and Hungary they wanted mm. to go to Sweden to France to Germany a lot of Ukrainian refugees actually wanted to stay in Poland which is probably because the language is similar it, there's like more cultural proximity, right? Yes, but I mean, yes, but you know, the relations between Poland and Ukraine were also not free of uh, stereotypes, conflicts. They were not necessarily easy, but it's true that, yeah, there was this geographical proximity, cultural proximity in a way. Um, there were communities already present. Yeah, uh, yes. I mean, one million Ukrainians uh, lived in Poland, you know, on the eve of the escalation of the war. Um, but what is also interesting in this context is that when the war actually started, and I'm, I talk here about the beginning of the war in eastern Ukraine and about the annexation of Crimea, there were very many Ukrainians from exactly those regions who were seeking asylum in Poland, but you know the applications were rejected. But what was offered to them work permits. And so they came not as refugees or they, didn't, they weren't asylum seekers, they came as workforce. To Poland, right? And I also find it a little bit ironical. Poland is not that generous when it comes to offering asylum places, but its economy really need, needs workforce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good that you mentioned this because those refugees from 2014 and onwards are also called the forgotten refugees. So it's, I think, good that we at least mention them here and don't forget about them and their situation. What I maybe also just wanted to say is also something about, I think if we talk about distribution of migrants and refugees in the European Union, while we definitely have to avoid cherry picking bo on both sides maybe, because we also have to talk about that maybe a lot of migrants, they want to go to Germany. Mm. So it's hard to distribute people, let's say to Poland, to Hungary, to Czechia, if they actually don't want to go there. This is one side. Mm. But then also on, on the host countries' sides and on the receiving countries' sides, 
to see also how is the integration and inclusion system there with which people could they deal best you know are there experts that for example speak the language of those people that will be distributed to them etc yeah the question i mean this is an important question like can you actually force people should you force people to go to another country because you know the reason why they go to 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 germany or why many want to go to sweden is also because there is an existing community that they know that they can be part of someone who, who will help them and someone exactly who speaks their language uh, so it's not necessarily only ha uh, the way that um, some politicians painted that oh they go there because uh, social system is so generous i mean come on social system pollen or the welfare system became much more generous in the last uh, years as well so it's not the only pull factor right but it's exactly those communities but uh, this is why the temporary protection directive in a way was a good solution because it gave people who were under this protection the um, flexibility and freedom of movement yes. within the EU and they could have decided where they go to. And of course, not everything is rosy and easy, but it shows that, you know, they go to places where they feel welcome, where they have the communities, where they are able to, to find proper education for their children or where they can find employment. Of course, we can also speak of many of them returning to Ukraine. And, and there, there are many issues, there are many challenges. It's not all just easy, but considering how unprecedented the situation was, we can, we can say that in a way it probably went much better than we would have yes. thought. We just come back to the question, why was the temporary protection directive not activated earlier? Of course, the risk was, I mean, the risk, um, there was this fear that that would be such a full factor that, you know, half of the world would try to come to the EU. But I also heard somewhere there was this uh, research in the States that most people would prefer to live in their home country and only after that in the US, right? And then again, when I think, and I want to give an example from Poland, Poles needed visas for a very long time to, to travel to the US, whereas other uh, nationals of other countries like Czechia didn't. And this was because the Polish community in the States was already so big. And the fear was, okay, now half of Poland will try to get to the US. But when uh, this visa requirement was um, dropped, there weren't crowds of Poles, you know, uh, is going to the US for reasons other than tourism. And this was also because Poland became part of the EU, mm -hmm. because the situation in Europe stabilized, because the situation in Poland became also better. And here again, we came to this issue that if we can support, you know, refugees and migrants in countries that they come from, it's not always possible. But instead of, you know, erecting walls and fighting them, if we try to find some incentives there on the spot, if we support them instead of penalizing them and criminalizing them, maybe, the, the, I mean, we can, we can find a solution. You definitely find that uh, with the refugees from the Middle Eastern region as well. It's the smallest share that actually comes to Europe and there is also this myth that everybody wants to come to Europe. Most of the people are actually internally displaced. Mm. They stay within their countries mm. or go to neighboring countries. The country that had the hard, uh, highest share of refugees was actually Turkey, for example. Mm. Now, Coming to the end of this podcast, I think something where I just want to know your opinion on it or, or how you would maybe 
give an outlook on it. If we look at 2015 and especially at the start of the year, there was actually the general EU discourse was rather friendly towards refugees from Syria, from Afghanistan, the refugees, especially from Syria, um, that traveled on the Balkan route. But this shifted a lot. Do you already see that or do you think we will see that soon with Ukrainian refugees as well, that there is somehow this support or solidarity fatigue if the countries, if a country like Poland sees that this war might go on for a long time, those people will stay for longer and also that some of them might do not want to return because as this war goes on, some people will give birth to their children in Poland, some Ukrainians, there will just be like a new generation also born in, in not in their in the country of uh, in the home country of their parents so how do you see the situation w will this change in poland will the hospitality again for refugees from ukraine continue you know no one knows future for sure you can only rely on what what you know so far what you have observed so far of course there has been a drop and there has been some sort of fatigue especially because very many people were hosting uh, ukrainians at their homes uh, but in comparison to other European countries, uh, the support is still relatively strong. There are some studies like Globsec's study, uh, which show that young people tend to be more um, or to be having more negative attitudes towards uh, Ukrainian refugees, which is an interesting observation. Still, in comparison to, to other European countries, this is still not an issue, um, but this is to be explained by the fact that they use social media a lot. This is where they gather information from. And a lot of fake news or negative examples are to be found there. And you know, uh, Poland and Hungary are so similar in, in this uh, demographic aspect. Uh, Poland also needs many more people if it wants to continue its economic growth. And Ukrainians are definitely, you know, needed as workers, as workforce in Poland. So I think that even for that reason, politicians would be interested in making them stay. So definitely we will continue to observe these developments. I will also do this on the Balkan route, definitely, which will be interesting looking at Croatia that now became part of the Schengen area and has a large border to non-Schengen countries, I would say. Just to finish up with our podcast, you know that we always have recommendations of a piece of art, etc. So what would you like to recommend? There is a book that has been recently published. Uh, I'm afraid it's only in Polish, but the title is Jesus Umar w Polsce, so Jesus died in Poland. And this refers to um, refugee or migrant uh, whose name was Isa. Isa means Jesus in an Arabic. And there was really this case where Isa died somewhere uh, between Poland and Belarus and was buried in Poland. But this has this very symbolic value as well, right? Christianity, Jesus, solidarity, support. Where, where is it now in Poland? Why, when Jesus comes, you know, figuratively speaking, to Poland, he dies again, why no one helps him at the border. So this is this is um, a reportage from the border that I definitely recommend. Very interesting. I uh, How about you? Uh, my recommendation is a 
piece of art in this case. It's called The Passage by Selma Banich and it is memorial portraits that are stitched on botanically dyed fabric and it is Selma Banich sees Croatian, she lives in Zagreb and it's a commemorative art project for people that died on the Balkan route and it gives those people a face, it tells about their stories and I think it's interesting to break that down sometimes to hear the stories of individuals and not only to talk about refugees and migrants as a homogeneous mass. Yes, otherwise there are just, you know, 800 people or increased by 1000% so on and so forth. So it's easier to, to ignore them. But once you know their, their story, you may, you may somehow feel for them. I mean, see also similarities yes. in their lives and yeah. This was Central Europe Explained. We thank you for listening and we hope you listen also to our other podcast episodes. Thank you and yeah, hear you soon. This was CEE, Central Europe Explained, a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. If you enjoyed listening to us, make sure to subscribe to the IDM podcast series on your favorite podcast platform. Additionally, you can explore our other work on our website www.idm.at. If you have any feedback or if you're interested in collaborating on a podcast episode, please do not hesitate to contact us through our social media channels at IDM Vienna or write us an email to idm at idm.at. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European perspectives, regional actions, cooperation and expertise since 1953.